quick editing note before starting the podcast proper. This interview with Professor Fogarty was a wide-ranging discussion that extended beyond certainly melanoma in the head and neck. In particular, uh, Professor Fogarty's experience and knowledge in relation to radiotherapy and its use for melanoma, as well as his groundbreaking work in relation to metastatic deposits, particularly in the brain. Due to time constraints, the podcast has been edited down to remain pertinent to the head and neck. Should you be interested in listening to the full unedited version uh, of the entire podcast, please do not hesitate to contact us and we'll be happy to provide it to you. Now, on with the podcast. Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Niall Jefferson. My guest today is uh, Professor Gerald Fogarty, and it's my pleasure to talk with him this morning. Uh, Professor, can you tell me a little bit about yourself? First of all, um, I've got over 50 publications in skin cancer. I received my PhD in the last few years about recent advances of the radiotherapy of skin cancer. Uh, I'm an associate professor at Sydney University and also at Notre Dame University here in Sydney. Uh, I work in the Melanoma Institute of Australia, which is a, the world's largest melanoma unit. I'm running a randomised trial funded to 1.5 million by the Australian NHMRC, our funding body, looking at the role of whole brain radiotherapy following metastectomy from melanoma in patients with oligometastatic disease. I think it's fair to say you sound like you'll know what you're talking about. So our topic for today is going to be on cutaneous melanoma. To begin with, what is melanoma and how is it different from other skin cancers? Melanoma is a cancer of the melanocytes. The melanocytes exist at the base of the epidermis. They are the remnants of a primitive neuroendocrine system and their role is to produce pigment uh, to cells, particularly those that are exposed to UV light. So as you get more UV light, they produce more pigment. The pigment is then uh, pumped into the into the basal cells. The idea of the pigment is to protect the DNA from ultraviolet light. When we then talk about a melanoma, what what's happened? Well, melanoma usually means malignant melanoma. So what's happened there is the melanoma, the melanocyte has gone beyond the control of the body to start producing other cells like itself in a random fashion. Usually there's been some mutation uh, in the melanoma which has driven it to start producing itself independent of the body's control. First of all, it grows. <clears throat> there are many ways it can grow. There are clinically recognised patterns of how melanoma starts, but basically it is a molecular problem in the DNA. As far as comparing it to other skin cancers, um, are there many differences? There are differences. The melanocyte produces pigments, so most melanocytes and most melanocytic tumours are pigmented. However, some are not. About 20% of them are not. And so if you've got a rapidly growing pink lump in the skin, that still may be a melanoma, and it's oftentimes those that are diagnosed late. Compared to other skin cancers, it happens at the basal level of the epidermis, so it's very like a basal cell carcinoma. Basal cell carcinomas, though, are known to grow locally and be a local problem rather than metastasize, although some do metastasize rarely. Squamous carcinomas also happen at that level. Squamous carcinomas can metastasize, and so they're more dangerous than uh, BCCs. 
the rate of uh, these cancers in Australia is for every one melanoma, there's 10 BCCs and about three SCCs. So the problem with melanoma is that it metastasizes very early in its growth. And for those melanomas that are four millimeters thick, the chance of dying with that melanoma is about 50% at 10 years. So it is quite a lethal tumor. It's not the most lethal skin cancer. The most lethal skin cancer is another cancer that's found mostly in Australia called Merkel cell carcinoma. This is known as being a rare cancer, but in our country it's becoming more uncommon than just rare. In fact, the peak incidence is in Perth. This stage for stage is three times more lethal than melanoma. It's usually found in old people uh, rather than melanoma, which is found usually in the middle decades of life. You've certainly uh, explained the ratio in relation to the other risk cancers. Overall, how common is melanoma? Well, melanoma depends a lot on UV exposure. So the most common place for melanoma in the world is in Queensland, followed by New South Wales, followed by Victoria, followed by New Zealand. This happens in the Southern Hemisphere because we have less ozone in the Southern Hemisphere and so more UV light reaches the, the planet. Also, the people in our country who suffer from melanoma really have genes that are more suited to a northern European climate from where they migrated. So we have a real problem with melanoma here. In other places in the world, it's less so. For example, in Australia, the third most common cancer is melanoma. In France, the 12th most common cancer is melanoma. Uh, sun exposure and potentially genetic predisposition are risk factors. Are there other risk factors for development of a melanoma? There are other risk factors for melanoma, although they they sum up the, uh, the the vast majority. In our country, it's UV exposure. In other countries, it can be other other syndromes, uh, usually to do with some sort of hereditary pattern. Uh, melanomas can be found also uh, with other tumours, for example, renal cell carcinoma, colon cancer. So there is some hereditary factor. Some of these have been worked out, and so high-risk families have been identified. And particularly in Australia, that is quite advanced. There's a uh, there's even a, a worldwide project called the Gen- Genomel project, which is identifying more and more precursors to melanoma in the genome every year. As far as risk factors, it sounds like there's there's still a lot of unknowns. Are there recognised pre-malignant lesions? Certainly there are pre-malignant lesions. Probably the most important lesion is lentigo maligna. 20% of melanomas come from lentigo maligna. Lentigo maligna is basically melanoma in situ where the melanocytes start to proliferate under the epidermis and from this melanomas can arise. There can be other types of melanoma, um, superficial spreading, nodular melanoma. These are more clinical correlates of what the melanoma is, but they are related to molecular profiles, some of which have been worked out, particularly the nodular melanomas. The, the new drugs have led us to classify melanomas differently based on their BRAF status, and it's known that the younger people, more with tanned skin, with nodular melanoma, are more BRAF positive than those that aren't. So this is a changing field. We don't really know what the 
precursors for melanoma rare. It's funny, 10 years ago we thought we did, but now with BRAF, we certainly know that we don't. With malignant melanoma, and we'll restrict this to the head and neck, but I'm sure it could probably be applied elsewhere in the body, how, how do they generally present? Well, they present as a, uh, as a changing lesion. So we use in Australia this particular pattern of the ABC, the uh, asymmetry of the lesion, uh, border change, colour change within the lesion, the depth of the lesion. So there are various ways that people can notice that their moles are changing. Uh, oftentimes a lesion starts to bleed or becomes itchy is another sign that the melanocytes are on the move. So once someone is has a lesion, which we're suspicious is a malignant melanoma, what are the steps in achieving a diagnosis and then performing a workup? Yeah, so in Australia, if someone has a lesion that has changed, then that would usually be enough grounds to take a biopsy. And some lesions are removed in their, in their completeness. A whole lesion is removed as an excision biopsy, and this could be sent off for pathology. Others are removed with a punch biopsy. Sometimes the dermatologists specialise in doing um, more superficial biopsies, a scrape biopsy, which is not the preferred uh, way of removing them because with the scrape biopsy, what can happen is that you lose an appreciation of the depth, and the depth of melanoma is, is very important for prognostication. So we prefer either complete excision removal or a punch biopsy. This is then sent off to the uh, pathologist and uh, the diagnosis is made. Once we've achieved a diagnosis, are there other investigations that we should get? That's right. So the, the recently MSLT1 trial, which was reported in the New England Journal of Medicine only last month, was a long study showing that sentinel node biopsy can be prognostic in uh, melanoma. What we recommend people now to do now is if they have a melanoma that is from one millimetre to four millimetres thick, then they should have a sentinel node biopsy. Um, if it's less than that, some people would still do a, a sentinel node biopsy depending on where it is on the body. Uh, if it's more than that, sometimes there are reasons to do a sentinel node biopsy, uh, but the risk of uh, from melanoma over four millimetres thick is actually from distant metastases rather than from regional metastases. So you mentioned uh, doing sentinel node biopsies. What about other investigations, CT, MR, PET scanning? Do they, do they have a role? They do have a role. There was a very interesting study just reported two weeks ago in JMIRO, which is the Australasian Radiology Journal. This was a report of 300 T1, T2 lesions uh, from the Northern Hemisphere that had been sent along inadvertently for PET scanning. These people really shouldn't be PET scanned. But they found in that that there was a total number of 17% true positives were found with PET. So even for lesions that were small, uh, there can still be a real pickup rate on PET. And this just shows how early melanoma metastasizes. But really there is no routine role for PET in that, uh, in that cohort. What we normally recommend people to do is if people are considering other therapies, for example, to say that someone has a sentinel node positive and they're heading to completion dissection in that, rele in that relevant nodal field, then other investigations such as PET scanning and MRI of the brain 
would be appropriate. Uh, there are still government uh, bodies that need to be convinced of this, but in our practice that's what we would do because if someone already has distant disease at that stage, then the relevance of doing a completion dissection, it may not be relevant to do a completion dissection in that situation. Taking it back a step and just going back to the biopsy for a moment, are there, you mentioned depth, what are the key elements that we want to know in relation to the results of that biopsy? A couple of things. We want to know whether the lesion is ulcerated. Mm -hmm. uh, ulceration has been shown in the recent uh, AJ, AJCC staging systems to be prognostic. Uh, we want to know depth. We also want to know mitotic rate, which has been shown as an independent risk factor. Uh, it's thought that ulceration might be an indicator of mitotic rate, and that's how it looks like mitotic rate will probably replace ulceration as a marker. So size is important. Also, we need to know the margin status because quite a lot of tumours, about 25%, have satellite nodules, particularly those that are thicker. So the normal treatment for melanoma is biopsy, either incisional or excisional, and then if that's shown to be melanoma, then to have a wide local excision. Now, the margin status for the wide local excision is, is still controversial. There have been trials showing that that two centimetres is just as good as four centimetres. There's another trial showing that one centimetre is just as good as three centimetres. So where the world is moving to now is what's called the Melmart trial, which is an international trial driven by one of our collaborators in Norwich University, which will look at two centimetres versus one centimetre. This is important because a one centimetre margin can usually be primarily closed, whereas a two centimetre margin needs a flap or some other uh, procedure which adds to the expense, adds to the complication rate. Mm. All right. So, however, may I just say that the, the central node biopsy must be done before the wide local excision. It is useless trying to do a central node biopsy after a wide local excision. The theory of the central node doesn't work as well, and people can miss an opportunity for further prognostication uh, and even for cure if they do not have a sentinel node biopsy done before the wide local excision. This is why we'd much rather have a staged procedure, even if it looks like a barn door melanoma, at least to confirm that with a punch biopsy and then to plan the sentinel node with the, with the wide local excision. Now, just to, to mention in the head and neck, oftentimes sentinel node is not reliable in the head and neck because of the vast amounts of rich lymphatics. So what we do, at least for those people, is we do lymphocentigraphy. Lymphocentigraphy and mapping of the relevant nodal fields can certainly help in watching for recurrence, knowing where those, where those lesions are. What we would do is we would oftentimes at least tattoo where the sentinel nodes are, if not remove the sentinel nodes. And it's also very important for radiotherapy field placement. Uh, this certainly helps us a lot to plan radiotherapy properly. We've talked about uh, mapping um, as a useful tool, particularly in the head and neck. What is the role of a neck dissection? Is there a role for a neck dissection in this disease? So back in the old days, before sentinel node, patients were subjected to elective neck dissection and a randomised trial was done and that was found to be useless um, or to be of no benefit, basically. Mm. So then, but with the advent of sentinel node biopsy, if patients have a sentinel node and it's involved, then the MSLT1 trials show that if you have an immediate 
dissection rather than waiting for a palpable nodule to arise, then this increases overall survival. So that's a very pivotal result. Now this result is very controversial, even though the, the trial reported as barn door positive. There are many people who advocate against sentinel node biopsy. We think that this is just crazy, but there are certain people who, who rail against it. We think this is a bit related to their inability to actually do sentinel node biopsy. We've talked about uh, neck dissection. Once we've surgically managed the primary, yeah. what, are, what is the role for other treatments? Yeah. So upon the primary would depend a lot of things. First of all, if you do have a melanoma between one and four millimetres thick, we would suggest having sentinel node biopsy. That would include lymphocentigraphy. Mm-hmm. If there are many nodal groups that light up with the lymphocentigraphy, then sentinel node biopsy is perhaps a bit useless because we don't know which sentinel node will be positive. But they would be mapped and tattooed, and that person would then go into an observation phase where they would be regularly looked at with clinical examination. And in some units, we're very lucky, we have a very good unit in terms of ultrasound, they'd be followed with serial ultrasounds as well. The role of radiotherapy in this setting is controversial. There's really no role for radiotherapy unless there is residual lentigo malignant left at the margin of the lesion after resection. Uh, Another role where radiotherapy can be used is where a complete lentigo malignant plaque cannot be removed because of comorbidity or uh, uh, patient desire not to have as much tissue removed. We're actually starting a trial called the Radical Trial, which is looking at radiotherapy versus iniquimod to clean up residual lentigo malignant. This trial is an exciting trial because it will also include in those units that have it a new technique called reflectance confocal microscopy. What this technique is, is basically in vivo pathology so that lentigo malignant can be mapped without the use of biopsies and then radiotherapy fields can be planned accordingly. The problem with lentigo malignant is that is marginal recurrence. This is very well summarised in a paper that came out in the British Journal of Dermatology early this year, which was a review of the role of radiotherapy in lentigo malignant. This trial will look at hemiquimod, which is an immunomodulator used in BCC, versus radiotherapy. The radiotherapy will obviously involve many visits to a department, but the hemiquimod can be applied at home. It'll be interesting to see which one comes out best. We've applied for NHMRC funding. We'll, we, we, we'll, this trial will also be run with collaborators in Italy, Brisbane and Melbourne. Are there other chemotherapeutic agents uh, in the management of malignant melanoma outside of topical treatments? There are. This has been a field that has changed rapidly in the past few years. Prior to three years ago, the only drug that had randomised trials showing that it worked was interferon in stage 3 disease. Um, In stage 4 disease, decarbazine was the usual metabolite used or chemotherapy used, but it only had a 10 to 20% response rate. Now, drugs which have come on the market have included those that target BRAF mutant disease. And it's been shown in Australia that 50% of patients have 
BRAF mutant disease. This is less in overseas countries, and it may be due to how the melanoma is started from UV light, but uh, BRAF has really changed the game. It really has broken up melanoma into two diseases, those that are BRAF mutant and those that are BRAF wild type. Now, the randomised trials in stage 4 disease have been completed with very good outcomes. The BRAF turns off metastatic disease with great rapidity and uh, people can even have Lazarus-type revivals with being completely sick on one day and within a week being able to get out of bed and walk around and within two weeks being able to get on a plane and go to a different country because of the BRAF drugs. The other drug in this area that has come on the market is Ibilumineb. Now this is an immunomodulator. This has been found to be quite effective. It takes a long time to work. There can be complications of an immune type in these patients that need to be carefully watched and best treated from specialist units. Um, there are some other drugs that are worthwhile in more rare type melanomas. For example, acral melanoma which is that found under the nails and on the soles of the feet has been found to be oftentimes C-kit mutant and C-kit mutant drugs uh, can be used in this situation. Sticking with BRAF, what is the duration of effect? The median duration of effect of the BRAF drug is about eight months. However, this means that there can be people who can respond for years and years and we've got outliers out to four and five years with no sign of recurrence of their disease the disease has been completely turned off. The BRAF drugs have been uh, a major advance for medical oncology in general. These drugs have been found across the blood-brain barrier. And in fact, for those that are found to have asymptomatic brain metastases, oftentimes they're treated up front with BRAF drugs rather than neurosurgery or stereotactic radiosurgery. This has been a major change uh, in the way medical oncology has focused particularly on brain metastases. This is important for melanoma because the, the usual mode of death of people with stage 4 melanoma is through brain metastases. Is there a role for tumour vaccines with this condition? The vaccine market is still alive and well. There hasn't been a vaccine that's shown to really work in melanoma. There have been anecdotal cases. The fact that ibilumineb is an immune modulator has given the immunologists a lot of hope, but trials are still uh, continuing. What do you see as the future for melanoma treatment? Well, the BRAF drugs have broken melanoma into two, into two, the BRAF mutant versus the BRAF wild type. In the immune world, a further division is coming up very soon. The immunologists have discovered a group of people that react very well to ipilimumab and those that do not react well to ipilimumab. So it looks as if melanoma is moving from being one disease to being four diseases. And so there will be a gradual evolution of the personalisation of medicine in this area. This is going a bit like breast cancer with there are so many drugs now for breast cancer that depend on what your molecular profile shows that will determine the drug you get. May I just say that on the basis of advances in medical oncology, which have actually have been significant and spectacular in the past three years, the whole game of treating melanoma has changed completely for the other specialties involved, particularly surgery and radiotherapy. Um, so the radiation oncologists have had to 
factor in the role of systemic therapies and their great impact and their relatively low toxicities. Don't forget the targeted therapies, only cells with the target are damaged so that these drugs, which are oftentimes taken orally, uh, can be done at home without having to come into a chemotherapy room, have really been a great advance for patients. Melanoma has now changed from being a fatal disease to being a chronic disease. So it's becoming a bit like diabetes where you manage each hypoglycemic crisis as it comes along. So we now have patients who had brain metastases diagnosed four or five years ago who we just keep treating with more SRS, more drugs, more whatever. Now in this situation, the quality of life post-treatment becomes even more important because these people are going to survive. So we really need to think about what are the side effects of having a neck dissection, what are the side effects of having hypofractionated, high-dose radiotherapy for metastatic disease, which can leave fibrosis at one year, whereas for these patients to live one year wasn't a problem before. We really need to think seriously about what is the best for the patient rather than just pushing old paradigms, because the old paradigms have changed completely in three years. Well, thanks very much for that. I think it was a uh, comprehensive discussion on what is certainly an exciting field and a rapidly evolving field. That brings us to the end of the discussion. Uh, I'd like to thank you, uh, Professor uh, Fogarty, for your time today. You can find other podcasts on iTunes at ENT Expert Opinion, Uh, Also on Stitcher, you can follow us at the website at entexpertopinion.com and you can always contact us either via Twitter, our tag is entexpertopinion or via email at entexpertopinion at gmail.com. We look forward to you tuning in next time. Thanks very much.